0: Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books Institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology science and Latin and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us today Saurabh Sharma. He is the president of an interesting initiative called American Moment. He is the former chairman of Young Conservatives of Texas, but that was long, long ago, as he will tell us. He graduated from the University of Texas long ago in June 2019. Uh, he has written, in spite of that recent uh, graduation, he's written for the American Conservative, The Daily Caller, The Spectator USA, National Review. He's with us today to explain what's sort of, sort of generally, what's going on with Young Conservatives, we spotted. Uh, his piece, and thought it would be good for our, our readers, uh, listeners, to hear about it. Welcome, Saurabh.
1: Thank you for having me on, Mark.
0: Now, uh, in your bio, you do mention something um, that... I now, now, you tell me if this is going on. You mention that uh, you always write with fountain pens. Uh, I, I got, do. I, I have here a, a, a Pelican from the 1960s, just, just a, an ordinary uh, Pelican office pen. Uh, what is what is your favorite model, please? You know uh, the
1: thing that I the two pens that I probably switch between the most is a uh, is a Pilot eight twenty three, um, a model that I believe you can only get in Japan. I, I definitely you know did some international trade to get a hold of it. Uh, and uh, the other one is a is a Pelican eight oh five. Those are sort of my two favorites. So, although I also really like uh, an Aurora op, uh, Aurora eighty eight that I have. Um, i don 't nearly get to write as much as, as I used to kind of in college and stuff because you know what work is a, is a mostly digital thing these days, but I'm looking for all sorts of excuses to, to write more up to it, including you know potentially just trying to, to, to write out the Bible by hand
0: or, or something like that. I think, I think that that is a good old-fashioned exercise that can only uh, improve one's uh, uh, prose style and moral character, so uh, I, <laughs> I'm, I'm with you on that. You know, just uh, uh, again off topic, is there a kind of a retro thing going on with your age group that you've seen LPs and and fountain pens, things like that?
1: Yeah, I, I would I would put it kind of in in two buckets. One is the the desire to return to more analog forms, uh, and that takes all sorts of different manifestations. It's everything from wanting a traditional straight razor for shaving to maybe using fountain pens to preferring a certain kind of wind up watch and and everything in between. I I think the internet has made it so that hobbyists from all over the world are able to sort of collectivize their their purchasing power and and create a market for these things anew. And so that's why fountain pens have had a real resurgence the past couple of years. and, And a lot of those other categories have as well. Uh, I think that, you know, people look at modern consumer culture. I mean, I'm looking at a, at a big stick right now, and they say, this is very disposable. It, it doesn't really, there's no permanence to it. There, there's very little in modern life that looks like the things that we're used to seeing from our grandparents, things that would survive 10, 20, 30, 40 years. And so people are looking to, to more permanent things uh, in order to, you know, I, I, with all the disposable income that, that modern life brings.
0: Uh, you know i i in one of the i retired last year in one of my last classes i i i had a seminar and I, I just i just took out an old pocket watch that I had and laid it on the table to keep time maybe it was because the clock in the room was 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 not working and all all the kids were there they were fascinated by the the pocket watch from from nineteen fifty or so they were fascinated by this by this big gold gold object you
1: know they just don't make things like that anymore. In fact, I, I recently, uh, I, I'm not even a smoker, but I, I recently partook of, of another example of this. Uh, I ordered a, a, a Dunhill roller gas lighter from the 1960s. Um, why? Cause, cause a friend of mine had one and I was like, I'm a fiddly person. I, I always have something I need to be fiddling with. And so I, you know, I decided to really, you know, perturb the people around me by fiddling with fire half the time. But uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's quite special. And, and it still works beautifully. And, and again, they just don't, they, they couldn't make things like that even if they tried. That's the real, I mean, if you want to tie together my politics with, with my hobbies, one of the things that was, was uh, intriguing to me about the fountain pen world was, was that there was all sorts of manufacturing processes, you know, nib design and, and, and things like that, that we literally do not know how to do anymore. You would think someone may have written it down. You would think that, you know, someone would have passed down the, you no, know, there are just ways of making things from the 1920s that we simply do not know how to do anymore with all of our modern technology and it's like okay you 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 out, you outsource your manufacturing and allow your capacity to dwindle at your peril because once it's gone you you can't get it back just by flipping a switch
0: right and you know there's a there, there's a pride one can take in knowing how to fix things uh, and I, I try to pass that on to my son because it's very unusual for them to be able to to fix things uh to you know to know how to tinker with things and and uh one of the benefits putative benefits of the digital age is we don't have to do all that work anymore things are so disposable they're so uh replaceable instead of fixable and i i, I well maybe maybe that is tied into a little bit of your your politics maybe there is a connection here um We'll get to that now. As everyone knows, there's a battle in conservative circles between establishment conservatives and one the more populist conservatives. Is that battle taking place in in your age group, too? The generation you're sort of the border of millennial and Generation Z.
1: I consider myself an, an elder Zoomer, as it were. You know, the, the, the oldest of Generation Z. I'm, I'm just 23. A few months ago, I, I, I consider myself wholly within that that age bracket, um, I think that there is this this conflict going on for kind of interesting social dynamic reasons. You know, it's been sort of the mainstay of politics on the right for the past 50 to 60 years that there's always a cadre of young people that say, okay, we have to moderate on our social issues. You know, we'll be fiscally conservative, socially moderate, you know, don't pay too close attention to these cultural ones. Allow me to to be on the right, but to be in good standing with my social cadre. And, and that's been normal. And, and you see a lot of that today amongst younger uh, conservatives. Uh, you know, you, you see the, the sorts of people who would look to maybe a Larry Hogan um, uh, in Maryland or, uh, or who's that governor in, uh, in Massachusetts. I'm forgetting his name right now. You know, they, they, they would look to those leaders, uh, you know, people like Evan McMullen or Mitt Romney and, and others as sort of the standard bearers for their vision of conservatism. Uh, That's normal. But what's weird about this moment is that there is also a very serious and growing contingent of more populist and nationalist young people, uh, I think inspired by, in some cases, a a particularly revanchist left uh, and and social pressures that that end up going too far in the other direction uh, for young people to the point that they rebel against them as opposed to conform, uh, but also the recognition that there are dark days ahead for young people if we don't write certain pathologies in American life and in Western life writ large. The the impossibility of having a family and owning a home because of crippling student debt and the state of our economy, the runaway credentialism that means you have to get more and more degrees just to get uh, entry-level jobs, uh, the feeling that the country is in decline, or at the very least in stasis, and the concept that we will necessarily lead a better life than our parents did is very much an open question. So that has inspired not an overwhelming cadre, I'm not even saying it's 10% of young people, but a, a statistically significant and politically potent cadre that, that will work very hard to ensure that some of these issues get the light of day.
0: I wonder how did they, how did they take the election, the November election? Did did a lot of the, the first group that you were talking about, those who want to get along socially uh, in the conservative side, did they do you think they voted for Trump? Did they slip over to Biden? Did they go that far?
1: I think it depends on who exactly you talk about. If, they, if they're you know, young politicos and they want to get involved, it was very uncontroversial to vote for Trump a second time around. In fact, it was kind of a, a career necessity for certain of them. Uh, if you're talking about more kind of a, a vaguely center-right-leaning or maybe moderate person just out in the electorate, I think a lot of them did, in fact, vote for Biden. Uh, in some ways, Biden was the the best-case scenario for them coming out of the Democratic Party, and they saw him as, as generally not a cultural revolutionary, and, and they thought that his administration would be characterized by relative uh, cooling of the culture war. Of course, I think that was extraordinarily foolish, and we're seeing how that's not what has happened mm-hmm. uh, and so a, a good deal of them did vote for Biden and, and the polling bears some of this out as well uh, that that younger Republican identifying people did break from the president um, in sixteen and twenty, but uh, that you know that, that they were probably particularly comfortable with voting for Joe Biden
0: in your piece, uh, your essay that you had um, entitled we must build an elite for this American moment. You opened by saying that the great failure or disappointment of the Trump administration was not the policies, but the inability to implement policies. What do you mean by that?
1: President Trump ran on an agenda that was very
0: distinct from the rest of that
1: field in 2016. You know, especially in kind of conservative think, conser- the conservative movement, love to elide those differences. But talking about trade and China, immigration, foreign policy restraints, breaking with all of these orthodoxies that have existed on the right for the last 20 years was, in some ways, revolutionary. But it took an outsider to bring that perspective and to break through those orthodoxies in order to win. The problem then was, was that same outsider status that was an asset that allowed for ideological entrepreneurship also made it so that the president was uniquely susceptible to sort of elite capture when it came time to actually govern. The ranks of the administration ranging from everyone from, you know, the 25 statutorily mandated advisors and deputy, or sorry, assistants and deputy assistants to the president, all the way down to, you know, the most junior staffers at agencies. You know, there's about 4,000 political appointments that a president makes when he comes into office or has the ability to make, along with countless careers that open up and, and can be filled during the time of his presidency. Uh, there were not 4,000 uh, loyal, credentialed, <laughs> aligned, uh, and, and, and qualified and competent. people yeah,
0: yeah,
1: yeah. right, it, that understood the Trump agenda. And so in some cases, uh, aligned but not necessarily competent people were put in these roles and they were quickly shuffled out. Uh, or in in most cases, people who weren't aligned uh, were brought in, and and not being aligned ranged from everything from you know well-meaning standard-issue conservatives, you know, people who may have come up in the Tea Party or or, or similar eras all the way to some of the most egregious examples of of active malfeasance and, and subterfuge. You know, I'm thinking Miles Taylor, who's the author of Anonymous, was uh, the chief of staff of the Department of Homeland Security. Uh, people like John Bolton, H.R. McMaster, you know, even Ryan Priebus, the first chief of staff of the president. People who really not only did not understand the president's agenda, but were actively hostile to it and were trying to fit a square peg into a round hole as it were and and mold the administration's political capital into their ends.
0: I think it was the great, yeah, you're right, it was the great failure, it was a personnel failure. I, I do not know why more of these people weren't fired way early in the, I mean, why was Christopher Wray uh, kept around, it? to me, uh, many, many cases like that. Uh, you you refer to some, quote, the permanent power structure in American politics. Who, who do you mean? The, the
1: permanent power structure is is not really a, a. I'm not making a value judgment when I talk about that. The thing is, is that even if you know the most libertarian of conservatives' dreams came true and the administrative state was was literally decimated, there are still positions of influence that will exist in politics it, it, to the extent that we continue a vaguely similar regime or governance structure as we have now. you know, These are some of those political appointments that I mentioned. They're the people who are in charge of political parties that are involved with the various think tanks, nonprofits, and advocacy organizations in D.C., uh, the people who run major political action committees, congressional staff, or as congressmen themselves. There is this constellation of, of seats. With bodies in them that will always exist. And uh, part of the thing that, that I'm interested in and that the organization I've started is interested in is recognizing that and, and dealing with the world as it is on that question. Because when we don't contend with the reality that those positions exist and will continue to, we put our kind of you know, fingers in our ears and go, la, 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 and, and and hope that everything will be fine when in reality, people who do not share our interests, and our priorities end up occupying those seats and wielding real power in a way that's destructive.
0: I, I think that, that that personnel factor is something the left understands much better than the right. Well, they have
1: does. countless places to house them in, in a lot of ways, right? The institutional foundations that you know fund any organization on the left to the tune of millions have the ability to create a lot of you know parking spots for people when they're out of government, uh, such that there, there's, there's just job security in being a bureaucrat on the left in the way that there isn't for being on the right and, and there's consequences for that when it comes to the ability to have state capacity and to govern.
0: Let's pause for a moment for what I believe is one of the best schools of higher learning in the country, the University of Dallas, the premier Catholic liberal arts university in Texas, with campuses in Irving, Texas and Rome, Italy. UD offers a rigorous and exciting core curriculum that sets it apart, an education rooted in the great works of Catholic and Western tradition, an education that ennobles and enables students in their pursuit of wisdom, truth, and virtue. Fidelity to man requires fidelity to the truth, which alone is the guarantee of freedom and of the possibility of integral human development. Those are the words of Pope Benedict, quoted at the University of Dallas, and guiding educators in all the departments of the university undergraduate, graduate, and certificate programs are available. Start your college odyssey at the University of Dallas today. Go to udallas.edu to learn more. Well, what I've also found in, in looking up in some of my, my, my research into, into youth issues that college leftist activists, those who really get into student government and want to do things like remove the American flag and things like this, there are Hundreds of positions waiting for them when they get out of school in different non governmental organizations and foundations, all of these groups that y- you never even heard of. There are, there's a huge pipeline for leftist activists. Is there anything comparable to for activists on, on the right? I mean, I know it's not nearly as large, but are, are there, is, is there a feeling that there, there are places? For young people like you to go when you when you graduate, I mean, I mean, I mean there there the, the, the think tanks, but there aren't very many spots in, in those places. But do you feel like you have a future, a strong future, when you are in college and you get involved as you did in in things uh, like conservative groups?
1: You know, I, I think that the spots are, are quite limited. Uh, there's just not a lot to go around, and. There is also this very, very weird cultural pathology on the right, which is that, you know, on the left, they have their institutions of prestige in higher education, everything ranging from the fanciest Ivy League schools to more esoteric ones like Vassar College and other places like that, that are designed to be elite training grounds for the left. Those naturally dovetail into this constellation of organizations that they can use in order to, to protect and, and take care of their people. but. There's a very weird thing that happens on the right, which is that the right institutions do not draw from right-wing cultural uh, you know, mainstays. They draw from those very same left-wing cultural institutions. So a Harvard or a Yale degree holds just as much, if not more, cachet on the political right in Washington, D.C., than it does on the left. Uh, hmm. Some of that comes from, I think, a fundamental cultural insecurity, it, it's a feeling that, you know, well, well, they're actually right. That is the real prestigious thing. But that's not the right natural constituency anymore. And it probably hasn't been for a couple of decades now. If the right were actually serious, it would be looking for bright people, you know, in the, in the Midwest, in the great middle of this country who didn't go to college uh, or, or perhaps went to, to less, quote unquote, prestigious colleges. And were using those as the funnel for their own elites. As it were and, and my and what I mean by elite is is fairly uh, you know anodyne I, I think that anyone who has an outsized effect on politics beyond just a normal voter is to some degree a political elite that's everything from you know the, the most senior advisors to a president all the way down to a staff assistant in Congress and uh, I get into some trouble when I say this because when you tell someone that they're an elite that there, there's a there's an implied Uh, You know, there's an implication there that that they have a responsibility that is concurrent with that. And and I say, yes, you do. (laughs) And so you should you should wise up and act like it. But on the right, because of this, you know, weird adherence to left wing institutional uh, uh, prestige, along with a a lack of, of, of seats to put people in, it is a lot harder to to feel a sense of projected job security being an ideological foot soldier in institutions in government for the right. And that has consequences for our ability to do things when we gain power.
0: Uh, Your article, uh, it appears I should say in the American Conservative, it it, it came out a few weeks ago. Uh, The subtitle is, however populist our sympathies or good our politics, elites are inevitable. They can be worthy or not. And so you spend a lot of time talking about the ruling class, as you call them. But you say that in our country, the ruling class is doing, quote, violence to the treasured building blocks of civilization. The elite in charge of maintaining the, the building blocks of a society, they, they are they're jackhammering at them. Can you give us an example?
1: Sure. I think that there's no better example than, than something that's consistently in the news these days the abandonment of any classical or even common sense conception of, of what is man and what is woman and, and the, the open warfare being done against America's children uh, and, and up to and including adults as it relates to the, the transgenderism issue. This is baffling to me at, at a certain level. The idea that a nation's leaders would encourage young people to sterilize themselves in the name of some warped conception uh, of gender. It's, it's, it's utterly baffling. Another example, uh, the, the manufacturing base of this country that was an engine of so much middle class prosperity was simply wished away by free trade absolutists over the course of the last 30 to 40 years. The idea that it doesn't matter where that thing, whatever that thing is, is made. Uh, as long as it's made as cheaply as possible. Well, there were consequences for that. Uh, our immigration regime, that not only undermines any sense of cultural or national solidarity in the country, but also has consequences for our labor markets, both at the high end when it comes to things like our, 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 our tech labor force. You know, we love to tell people to learn to code. Uh, well, there's, there's no coding jobs left, I'm sorry, an H-1B visa was used to, to fill that job. And then, you know, all the way down to the lowest levels, you know, farm workers and things like that. Uh, when we look at our foreign policy, I mean, uh, it is not the children of, of Bill Crystal that fight America's wars. It's just not. It's, uh, it's, it's middle and lower middle class people in this country who see military service in a lot of ways as a path to the middle class or to some semblance of stability. They sign up for our wars and then they die in them because of the ideological ambitions of elites in Washington. I mean, there's countless examples ranging across the issues where people who live in very nice, gated communities, insulated from the pressures of the actual economy, insulated from the pressures of actual American life for most people, make ideological you know, broadsides on, on these issues without any real concern. And and why would they? Because they don't experience it for the consequences for for people who don't have the luxuries they do.
0: You know, you cast the group of advisors on the right, uh, the consultants and so on. You cast them as, quote, tired nostalgics, corporate shills, and bow tie clad intellectuals. Uh, I've seen a lot of those myself in DC. What successes do those brilliant advisors claim? in the last 20 years
1: one of the ones that you know comes typically from quote unquote inside the tent as in as people who self-identify as as conservatives and perhaps even strong conservatives is the the pro-life movement I mean that that is one that they they claim you know the that the abortion rate in America has fallen uh, and that that the, the as, as a matter of polling the pro-life issue has re- remained relatively stable obviously the, there's a lot of very open debate on whether that necessarily is an accurate assessment of the success of the pro-life movement. Uh, and, you know, even recently in first things, I believe uh, there have been several disagreements about what the path forward on that policy area should be. Uh, but that's, that's one that, that, you know, self described conservatives advance, you know, more generally center right identifying people or, or, you know, simply fiscally responsible people point to, Keeping taxes low, keeping America secure after 9/11, uh, and, and a whole variety of other things, uh, you know, relating to, to quote-unquote economic issues. Which, as an aside, I don't really believe there's any such thing as an economic issue. I think that everything is a cultural issue. What kind of families you have, how wealth is uh, is earned in your society, uh, whether people are able to have homes and families, and, and if so, how. Uh, these are all cultural questions, and and. Using a purely economic or, or a neoliberal framework to think about them, I think, is, is one of the great sleights of hand that, that a lot of the establishment uses to, to pigeonhole uh, those issues as, as beyond reproach, as, as untouchable by questions of culture. That's how we got the free trade regime that we have now, was that was considered purely a, a quote-unquote economic question. Uh, so, so those are some of the, the supposed successes, and I obviously have, have deep problems with, with most of them in terms of uh, whether or not their they're successes on their own terms or, or whether they, the ends that they have successfully pursued are, are a good thing in and of themselves. Uh,
0: you, you say something about the advisors on the left as well. You call them, quote, aloof management consultants, race hustlers, and literal anarchists. Where do they want to take the Democratic Party?
1: Well, I think each of those have their own aspirations. Uh, when, when I think of uh, you know management consultants, I, I think a, an original uh, early script of that, that piece used a more coy term that I like to use, which is McKinsey Americans um, <laughs> as, as a class, as, as typified in someone like a, a Pete Buttigieg, who... You know, rode up to the White House, except you know, uh, in a, in his suburban with his security detail a couple of days ago. But then six blocks away, hopped on a bicycle to seem eco-friendly. Like that is, <laughs> in many ways, an encapsulation of do, do they, of all of the cultural. I I, I yeah. saw
0: that, so do they really think that they could get away with it in this in this cell phone digital world? I mean, are, are, do they really think we're that dumb? Well, look, did you see an article in the New York Times about it? Did I, I,
1: you see an article I, I, in the Washington Post about it?
0: Point made. point me. <laughs> <laughs> the fact
1: that only right-wing media covered it tells you how intensely powerful the narrative shaping, you know, institutions are on the left. Uh, if if a Republican appointee had done anything like that, we would have heard about it for months. Oh yeah. It would have been considered a dereliction of duty, the death of democracy a PSYOP against the American people, it, it would have, it, we would have been just berated. But instead, you know, Pete Buttigieg is allowed to, to do what he wants. I, I, I think that when it comes to that professional managerial class, I look at it as the, the perversion of American meritocracy, where credentialing institutions for their own sake are able to, to create this clarity in American life that, that feels like it has the impremature to rule. But all of those credentialing institutions are both morally and substantively bankrupt. They aren't creating virtuous or noble leaders. They're, they're creating people who are utterly convinced of their own greatness while having no substance to back it up. People like Pete Buttigieg, who, who only seem to fail up, being a classic example. So,
0: sir, so, oh, c- come on. But they, but they went to a top school. Well, they did, right. And, 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 and it
1: is my contention that... <laughs> At this point, I'm willing to, uh, someone has to justify uh, even neutrality on, on my part if they did go to one of those fancy schools. Like, I assume that there's something awry if someone has a degree from Harvard or Yale at this point because the, the pathologies that it takes in order to be successful in that system are, are truly disturbing, especially as objective criteria like grades or, or standardized tests become an ever decreasing portion of the the admissions criteria uh one of the that's right the people that i think is a fantastic avatar for this, this is a story you may have seen a couple of years ago there was a young a young chap named ziyad ahmed who applied to stanford university and and his one of his essays was simply black lives matter written 100 times in a row now he didn't end up matriculating to, to stanford he ended up matriculating at yale and uh you know had had a I was, was very involved with the, the Martin O'Malley and then Hillary, uh, Clinton campaigns in 2016 and then the Bernie Sanders campaign in 2020 only to, to turn around after Bernie, uh, lost to, to chastise his fellow leftists, as it were, to, to get in line and vote for Joe Biden. Of course, the, the funniest part about all this is that his father is a top quant at Citibank and makes tens of millions of dollars every year, as, as this often goes. But, you know, that is that is what our ruling class looks like, people who are very good at speaking a particular dialect of, of woke English and, and and pushing certain cultural pieties that, to be fair, if if the goal of these institutions like Harvard and Yale is to create the American ruling class, the way to succeed and become part of that ruling class is to obey these woke pieties. And so you should select for them if that's your interest. Of course, that's a circular process, and it only deepens itself further. But in terms of purely rational self-interest on behalf of these institutions, I kind of get it. Um, so, you know, th- that's, that's one class. You know, the, the race hustlers, uh, you know, as typified by people like Ibram X. Kendi and Robin D'Angelo, I think, are another. And, and there is a, a very potent nexus between these two classes. Nicole Hannah-Jones, who is the, the author and, and, and designer of the 1619 project. Uh, there, there's this great, great image that floats around, especially leftist Twitter. You know, kind of an anti-anti woke leftist Twitter, which is an event that Nicole Hannah Jones did about about her project. And and right below a, a very stern, uh, you know, matronly picture of her uh, is is uh, you know the the logo of Shell Corporation, powered by Shell. And and that's very much <laughs> what what so much of modern American life is is. You know, uh, absurd racial ideologies sponsored by our biggest corporations, because we do, in fact, have an industrial policy in America, contra libertarians' uh, you know presumptions. The, the the industrial policy is just for English majors from Vassar College to be HR bureaucrats at our biggest corporations, and, and they hire each other, and and they can make a very tidy living for ourselves. That's an, that's another set of of seats for institutional players on the left is now just being part of the diversity and inclusion bureaucracy that, uh, that permeates all of American life and, and our biggest corporations included. And then some of them just want to make, see, see, America burn. And that's how you get, you know, the anarchists after the, the George Floyd protests uh, that's how you get Portland, Oregon. That's how you get, you know, all of the, the, the street skirmishes we see. So, so that's why my, 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 my perceived troika of the left is, you know, McKinsey Americans or the aloof management consultants the race hustlers, and the literal anarchists. And, and they're, they're very tactically ecumenical. They very rarely bash one another. They recognize that you need, uh, you need all three of them in order to advance their cultural agenda, and each plays a different role.
0: Uh, l- last question, Sorov. Uh, you are one of the co-founders of American Moment, and your, your article describes it as an organization dedicated to identifying, educating, and credentialing Young Americans Who Will Implement Public Policy That Supports Strong Families, A Sovereign Nation, and Prosperity for All. Uh, What do you want to do in the next three years?
1: Well, in some ways, that article that that you have been reading from during this interview was, was sort of talking shop. It was creating the justification for what we are trying to do. It's my belief that this personnel problem on the right is not going to go away. It's not something that will be anachronistic to the Trump administration, especially if a future, you know, more nationalist leaning president is elected because the permanent bureaucracy in Washington, D.C. still has not learned. Uh, And so what we're trying to do at American Moment is starting at the most junior levels, create an institution single-mindedly devoted to getting as many young people who are aligned with us, who are loyal, competent, and, and hardworking and, and who are interested in devoting their lives to this work to start to enter these institutions, uh, whether it's as interns and staff assistants on Capitol Hill, as junior public policy staffers, and in some cases into even the, the literal permanent federal bureaucracy. We want to uh, incubate that talent to do that work contra a lot of what what kind of young conservative activism encourages which is being a pundit or a news commentator or a social media influencer we're looking for diligent behind the scenes operators who who are just need an institution that will help them get here and get involved in that way such that the next time we have a presidential administration i'm under no illusions that i'll bring all of them uh, but if we bring a couple hundred maybe even as much as a thousand names of people who are fully aligned or prepared and who have the qualifications in order to serve, that some of these problems can can be avoided next go around. Because I, I, I frankly believe that, that the American people deserve good governance. And if the right is incapable of providing it, uh, we don't deserve power. And so we are trying to, to incubate that talent. It's a little bit of a different approach to young people than a lot of the incumbent organizations have. I'm not really interested in creating a mass movement. Uh, there's others that are better at that. My interest is, is in incubating, you know, in, in some ways uh, an elite, but a, a just patriotic and 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 prepared one to, to lead and govern.
0: The project is American Moment. So, Rob Sharma, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Mark. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.